Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Women's War, a production of iHeartRadio. It's July 26th, 2019 and I'm celebrating the end of our journey in Rojava by getting a tattoo. Since arriving in Rojava, I've been surprised by the number of tattooed folks that I've met. On our first full day out in Kamishlo, I asked a heavily inked Asayish man for his artist's contact information. Chabot called and set the whole thing up, and so the day after our visit to the YPJ training base, we headed back to Kamishlo to meet my man. Jake and I had kind of expected that this would be our last hurrah in Rojava, we had originally planned to spend this day visiting Al-Hol, the refugee camp slash prison camp for ISIS wives. But that fell through, and Chabat wasn't sure if it would be possible at all. With no more work to do, I felt like getting a tattoo in Rojava would be a worthwhile experience. And I was right. It turns out there aren't a lot of tattoo artists in this part of the world, and the guy that Asaish officer set us up with was the same person who did all the ink for the YAT, or anti-terror units, the YPG Special Forces. These folks are the equivalent of Rojava's Navy SEALs, and most of them were trained by elite U.S. troops to carry out surgical strikes against ISIS. Our contact today, the guy who's going to take us up to meet the artist, is a soldier in the YAT. Alan parks his van in the middle of a neighborhood in Kamishlo, surrounded by tall, blocky apartment buildings, and we wait for our contact to arrive. A van pulls up. It's similar to Alan's, but newer, and festooned with stickers bearing the face of Abdullah Ajalan on its front and rear. The driver has a fluffy mustache and tattoos covering his arms and hands. He is easily the most heavily inked person I have seen in Rojava. His most prominent tattoo is an M4 assault rifle on his forearm. Oh my god, Chabat says with a laugh. He looks like a mafia guy. We park next to each other, outside a nondescript apartment building, and we all shuffle out of our vehicles. The YAT man is tall, well-built, and wears a Glock 19 strapped to his hip. He leads us up the stairs and towards his artist's apartment, and while he does, we talk. He informs me that he got his very first tattoo in 2011, after being arrested by the Assad regime for lighting a police car on fire. He spent three years incarcerated. 
The artist's apartment is about seven flights up. It's the only finished home on that floor. The doorway leading to what would be his neighbor's place is unfinished, and the empty hole is filled with old debris. It looks like whoever was constructing this building stopped when they were about 80% done and never came back to finish it. The artist's apartment is nice, though. A simple and comfortable one-bedroom. He has a PlayStation and some controllers in front of a TV, a swamp cooler, and a couple of empty beer bottles surrounded by three floor-level couches that line the walls of the room. He hands me his phone, with his Facebook page loaded up, and I skim through dozens of pictures of the other tattoos he's given. A striking number of them feature devout Christian imagery. He tells me that a lot of his customers are local Armenian Christians. There's also a lot of militant imagery, tattoos that would not have looked out of place in an American Legion meeting. A bloody grizzly bear claw, soaring eagles, a hanged man, numerous rifles, handguns, and knives. Our special forces friend points out his favorite tattoo, on his left arm, of a V for Victory sign superimposed over a Kurdish flag. He rolls up his sleeve and shows me a very surprising tattoo, an enormous 10-inch tall depiction of an American sergeant's rank chevrons. As a member of the YAT, he trained and fought alongside American soldiers. The Marine he worked with the most was a sergeant, and he got this tattoo to honor his friend. This soldier will remain the only person I speak with in Rojava with thoroughly pro-American convictions. He considers U.S. soldiers to be his friends and battle buddies, and he deeply admires them. He does not think the United States will pull out of Rojava, likely because he can't imagine the soldiers he fought alongside abandoning him. I spent a large part of this trip debating with myself about what tattoo to get. In the end, I settled with something simple, the words Bakhwadan Gianni on my right shoulder. It means resistance is life, and it's the closest thing to a national motto this non-nation has. I'm not an expert on tattoo guns, but I have received a number of tattoos over my life, and my artist's tool looks new or at least well cared for. His ink is high quality, and it stood up well over the course of the last year at least. He tells me he has it smuggled in from regime-controlled Syria. The only part of the procedure that's less professional than the experience you'd have over in the United States is the fact that he cuts a hole in a cigarette packet and wedges the cap of a water bottle in there to use as an ink reservoir. I don't get an infection, so clearly he took the precautions he needed. Once the needling starts, Chabat is fascinated. She's never watched anyone get a tattoo before. Weird as she finds it, Chabat is also clearly intrigued. We bat around ideas for tattoos she might get. I suggest an illustration of the mamas, but she says that would look too crowded. A few months after this, Chabat will send me a picture on Telegram of a new tattoo she's gotten, the name of her brother's Anna. Jake and I sort of expected that this tattoo would be our last hurrah in Rojava, but later that afternoon, while Jake and I rest on our porch, Chabat texts us with some good news. She'd succeeded in getting permission for us to visit Al-Hol after all. We would, in fact, be able to tour Rojava's most infamous prison camp and interview some of the ISIS brides interned therein. On our first full day in country, we'd visited Judge Amina and toured one of Rojava's ISIS courts. She'd talked a very good game about the importance of forgiveness and humane treatment of prisoners. This would be our chance to actually observe the ground-level realities of this justice system. And it would also be potentially dangerous. Al-Hol is an awkward mix of refugee camp and open-air prison. Thousands of refugees from the Civil War live there, alongside a small concentration of ISIS brides and their children. These inmates live in a separate, fenced-off section of camp. Their status as non-combatants means that they are given more leniency than captured fighters. They are allowed to receive guests, gifts, and even have money wired to them from ISIS supporters abroad. 
it would be a mistake to see these women as less devoted to the dreams of the caliphate than their mostly dead husbands. Two weeks before our arrival, an ISIS bride stabbed an Asayish guard in the back with a smuggled-in knife. Photos of the wounded man in the hospital infirmary with a blade jutting out of his shoulder went viral in the global media. Every new week brought stories of stabbings, attempted stabbings, and mass stone-throwing by ISIS prisoners against their guards. We woke up on the morning of July 27th, excited, and a little bit nervous, to see the reality for ourselves. Chabat and Alan picked us up early in the morning, and as we downed coffee and started our drive, I talked with Chabat about the news. Did you hear the news yesterday about what Erdogan said? What did he say, no? Uh, just that he was gonna, like, regardless of what happened with the uh, negotiations over the border zone, uh, the Turkish army was gonna wipe the YPG off the map, essentially. Welcome. <laughs> she means that he's welcome to try. Chabat is confident in the ability of her friends in the SDF to protect their home. Looking up at the Turkish border fence, I myself am less certain. But Chabat's confidence in this matter is not based on any sort of ignorance about combat. On our drive to Al-Hol, Chabat decides to show us some footage on her phone from a project still in progress of her embedded with the female fighters of the YPJ. It's harrowing stuff, and it includes absolutely terrifying close footage of a U.S. airstrike. It does not look like the sort of footage that someone should have been able to actually record and survive. Chabat explains to us how she got the shot. I put the GoPro, and I get some footage from the FSJ phone. Yeah. Uh, they were already like filming time to time. So you have two angles. So we have two, no, we have the camera uh, Panasonic on the roof, because they, they know it's coming. So when we know it, I just put the camera and I came. Yeah, yeah. And put the GoPro on the other side. And it's happening. She tells us that she almost wasn't able to set the shot up because the place where she was positioning her camera was so exposed to ISIS sniper fire that one of the YPG officers didn't want to allow her to go out. But I have a fight with the YPG guy there. He was almost kick us out. Why? Because he was like, it's risky. You have to sit down. La, la, la. I said, I'm not here for a chai. Yeah. I have to work as you are going to work. Yeah. I have to put the camera. I'm telling you, I will not stay on the roof. I know there is a fucking sniper there. Yeah. I'm telling you, I will going to just put the camera on and back. Yeah. I love that. I'm not here for a chai. I'm not here for a chai. Yeah. I'm going to use that. That's, That's so the first good. time I've heard you say fuck. <laughs> <laughs> We drive on through more yellow rolling fields, past green orchards, over burn scars, and around small towns. Finally, we reach the camp. Our whole stretches from horizon to horizon. 70,000 people live here. It is an enormous place, a refugee camp the size of Burning Man. As we take it in, Jake calls it the Islamic State of Al-Hol. Chabat replies, exactly. Jake hands me his phone and shows me an open telegram channel, used by many of the ISIS brides in this camp. Telegram is a social media app that allows for encrypted communication. After Facebook and Twitter successfully purged most ISIS accounts, Telegram became a popular gathering place. The ISIS brides of Al-Hol use it to organize fundraising from supporters abroad and to plan attacks on guards and visiting journalists. They share pictures of homemade knives with no apparent concern that they might be busted. Days ago, when we'd visited the Women's Economic Development Council, I'd had a little embarrassing snafu with my pocket knife and an Asaish guard. Since then, every time we'd entered a military or police building, Chabat had reminded me to leave my knife in the car. As Alan parked the van and we prepared to enter Al-Hol, Chabat looked back at me and said, Robert, I think it would be a good idea for you to bring your knife. I clip my CRKT inside the waistband of my pants, and we hop out of our van and walk up to the intelligence office, where the Asaish guards at this facility do their best to coordinate some form of security for Al-Hol. 
We're led into a small trailer with a desk, two couches, and a mercifully powerful air conditioner. Two items sit on the desk, a crude handmade ISIS flag and what looks like a slam-fire shotgun built out of PVC and tape. Jake and I are staring at both when our first source for the day, a young female Asaish officer, steps into the room. She explains that the gun was built by ISIS children and has been confiscated. It was more likely to have been a toy than a serious attempt at building a weapon, but they took it anyway. The Asaish officer tells us that she would prefer we not use her name, and she does not wish to be recorded, but she agrees to talk if we'll abide by those terms. This is the first time in Rojava that someone has refused to be recorded, but her reasoning makes sense to me. She has family in the area, ISIS sleeper cells are numerous, and the ISIS families in El Hol regularly communicate with the outside world. The danger to her family is real, but she herself has been the victim of violence numerous times here. She pulls out her phone and shows us a picture of an enormous human bite mark on her left arm. Then she rolls up her sleeve and shows us the wound itself, partly healed now but still bruised a deep pinkish yellow. The story behind the injury is harrowing. She was attacked by a mother, a little girl, and her son. The mother shoved her to the ground, the daughter bit down hard on her arm, while the son grabbed a nearby fuel can and doused her with gasoline. She managed to flee before they could light her on fire, but the whole experience was very traumatizing. After that, she tells us, she refused to meet with any of the families without armed backup. Always they are beating us, she tells me. She shows us pictures of wounded internees, beaten by ISIS prisoners who essentially act as Hizbah, or religious police, inside the camp. There are murders here, she tells us, and many attempted murders. Chabat chimes in at this point and tells us, last time we were here, it was worse than the front lines. The Asaish woman explains that ISIS flags are banned here. But, pointing to the flag on the desk, she informs us that the guards find ISIS propaganda almost daily. Much of it is made by the children of ISIS brides. Jake shakes his head and tells her, I don't know how you tolerate this. She responds, It is because countries don't care about this. There are 64 nationalities here. Every day they are beating us. They throw rocks at us. Always we jump in the car to protect ourselves. You cannot do anything. We are obliged to drive in armored cars because they break the windows on the regular ones. Their countries will not take them back, so we are obliged to take care of them. Most Western governments have washed their hands of citizens who join the Islamic State. Their attitude is embodied by the actions of the British government towards Shamina Begun an ISIS bride who had her citizenship revoked, which left her and her newborn child trapped in a refugee camp in Rojava. On March 8, 2019, the news broke that her malnourished child had died in the camp. The issue of what to do with ISIS's foreign volunteers is one of the most complex problems left in the wake of the caliphate's collapse. It is easy to see why Western governments would want to abandon their wayward citizens. After all, many of them burn their passports and even renounce their citizenship but doing so leaves these people trapped in northeast Syria, where the self-administration of Rojava has no choice but to take the best care of them that it can. Unfortunately, their resources are scarce, and this has led to the nightmare situation where dangerous, radicalized extremists live in the same camp as Iraqi and Syrian refugees, blameless civilians guilty of nothing worse than being caught up by the vagaries of war. Since the ISIS wives have international supporters who donate money to them, they're able to live relatively well, and their wealth gives them power over the non-ISIS internees. They also have the benefit of being organized, which allows them to exercise violent power over the other groups in the camp. Our guard tells us that she's seen ISIS women attack the Iraqi and Syrian IDPs. Just yesterday, an Iraqi refugee was beaten for not wearing a headscarf while inside her tent. A few hours later, they burnt down the tent that held a UNICEF school for children in the camp. Our source describes a constant drumbeat of violence. The caliphate's territorial possessions have been officially destroyed in Syria, but the Islamic State lives on in these daily acts of hate.
For now, the SDF and its Asayish guards have been able to keep the violence in Al-Hol from spilling outside the camp. But everyone here knows that war with Turkey is coming, and the chaos it brings will provide the inmates here with opportunity. I ask our guard what she sees coming in the future, and she tells me, It is like a nuclear bomb. It is going to explode into all of the world. The fissile material in this bomb is the children of these ISIS brides. Our guard explains, Right now you can see the ISIS mentality in the children. We are not going to attack them, so they wield their children against us. Despite this, she tells me she truly does believe that it's possible to rehabilitate these people, and even to release them someday. But any kind of de-radicalization work in Al-Hol is made nearly impossible by the sheer volume of people here. She also expresses deep frustration with the NGOs who come here to ostensibly offer aid. They have provided many of the ISIS brides with cell phones and internet access in misguided attempts and misguided acts of humanitarian compassion. A few days ago, she tells me, I wanted to go into the camp with the captured ISIS men and an NGO guy told me I should go in without my gun. He treated me and ISIS like we are the same. Jake says he wishes the countries making up the coalition would at least build a proper prison here if they aren't going to repatriate any of their wayward sons and daughters. We hope, she says in response, they don't. Her biggest frustration, personally, is the fact that the ISIS brides, being strict Muslims, are allowed to all dress in the long black niqab, with even their faces covered by thin black cloth. This makes it much, much harder for the guards to effectively police them, since dozens of women dressed in head-to-toe black cloth are all functionally identical. One woman can throw a rock or even slash a guard with a razor blade and then melt back into the crowd. It's a real problem, but the wearing of a niqab is an issue of religion, and religious freedom is protected under the Rojavan constitution. The NGOs keep a tight watch over everything to make sure the Asayish don't restrict the ISIS brides by forcing them to bare their faces. Every day they are beating us, she tells me, and if they kill me, who will say anything? Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. 
and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After an hour or so of talking, our interview subjects arrive outside. Before we came, Chabad had informed the guards that we wished to interview any ISIS brides who wanted to talk. Two came forward, and we will hear from them very soon. But before our Asayish guards signaled for them to be let in, she gave Jake and I a very serious talk. She wanted us to know that these women had rights, including the right to end the interview at any moment. If they did not want to answer a question, we could not compel them to do so. She asked if we understood, and Jake and I said yes. Then she bid farewell and exited the trailer. We would be allowed to conduct our interview in total privacy with no guards sitting in. Yeah. They think we're from America. Where you we're from? trying to explain to them that we are from South America. Actually, we're from the Caribbean. Uh, Whereabouts? So I'm from Barbados. Uh, I'm from Trinidad. Trinidad. Okay. Yeah. okay. So when we said Genubia attack, um, they were like, still come, come, come. Okay. So now we're here. Gotcha. <laughs> Yeah, I was, we were having a little trouble understanding. South yeah. America. Yeah. That makes sense. Just like yeah. if you're black, they think all black people are from Somalia or Sudan. Yes. And it's not like that, you know? The interview is immediately surreal. Both of our subjects are very tall and covered completely by the niqab. We can only see their eyes and a thin sliver of black skin around them. But they speak like my Caribbean friends back in Los Angeles. The same slang, the same speech patterns. Only they're talking about their time as willing members of one of the most violent terrorist organizations in human history. Uh, we came with our husbands. Um, that's it. We traveled here. Make, we made hijra. We said we were coming here. We to live under Islamic State, you know, under the law of Islam. Hijra is a journey, or immigration. Historically, it refers to the Prophet Muhammad's flight from Mecca to Medina in order to escape persecution. ISIS followers used the word to describe the act of fleeing their homelands for the caliphate. And we basically followed our husbands, you know. He gave us advice and we just followed him and now we're here for four years. Four years, so you yeah. came in 2015? Yeah. And so me in 2014. 2014, actually. 2014. No. And was there, um, was it your husbands that told you about this place? Did you see, like, in Dabiq or anything like that? Like, where the magazine... Dabiq was ISIS's premier magazine during the group's heyday, and it frequently urged its readers to depart the land of shirk, the decadent West, to join the Islamic State. At the time, there, were not, there wasn't really much Dabiq magazines, but, you know, it was our husbands who was really the ones who was telling us this is what we need to do. Actually, for me, when, um, in 2014, I didn't know anything about Syria, you know? Yeah. My brother, who happens to be her husband, he was uh, really athletic, he was a world boxer, he was a lawyer, very 
wild, educated, almost party guy, you know. And then after my father got killed, my father died in my country, my family just made this big turn around, you know, like, we, I don't know, like we got this wake up call, you know, we need, you know, normally when people die, that's when they become godly then, yeah. more or less, you know. So then we started trying to find Islam. And then my brother came home one day and he said he's going to Syria. And I started laughing. I'm like going where? Because, you know, I dress just like how the Red Cross women dress. I never wore this before, you know, gloves. And I never wore all those things. I was into makeup and piercings and all these crazy things, you know, which I still like. But um, and then after digging up, I was trying to find out why, what's with Syria, what's with Syria, what's with Syria. And then I heard it's strict Sharia, which is what I like. Because my country, yes, it's Islam, but... Mixed. It's really mixed. Like one minute you see the Muslims in the masjid, the next minute they're behind the um the big truck for carnival, and you see the Muslims waving the hijab. Like so I, yeah. I was kind of confused, you know. Both women were so friendly and casual that it was jarring to get reminders of what absolute hardliners they both were. After all, who gets angry at carnival? So I said, let me try see what Syria is about, kind of thing. And then we opted to come to Syria, which was in November of 2014. Why do you like Sharia? Why I like it? From what I understood before, it's... Let me see. If you you really understand what Islam is, and I mean, if you really understand what it is, I think for me, I like it. I really like it. You know, it's balanced. It's not extreme or it's not killing, killing, killing. But even think it's extreme and it is killing, killing, killing. You don't think ISIS was extreme? Yeah, some parts of it I found, I, I wouldn't say extreme, but some parts I think I expose myself, to, even my children, to too much uh, violence. For example, uh, the beheadings and some of this stuff like that, you know? I think it wasn't necessary for me to show my children it. I taught and I, I told um, a journalist before, because I had an interview before, I can't remember which who I can't remember her name. For me, I found, um, yes, you could tell them, okay, this is what happens when you do so, 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 but I thought also I should show them balance. You, have, you should have rahma, mercy. You know, it's not always about kill, 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 blood, blood, blood. You know, there is mercy. And I think that's why now in the Mukayim, so many children are so aggressive. Even when you guys come, they were spelling stones and kalban, which I hate. I really dislike it. She's expressing that she dislikes it when other ISIS wives and kids throw stones at the Asaish. And then the way some, uh, like how the parents talk to the children, you know, dog, or you see them kicking, come on. You know, and then you wonder what, what's your purpose, what, come on, you know, so. But for me, Islam, whether you choose this way or you choose that way, you're a Christian, you're a Muslim, you're gay, you're whatever, that's your choice. That's you, you know, but this is just me. You understand? When you arrived in the Islamic State, how did it match what you'd been expecting? At the beginning, because the Islamic State, at the time, there was a caliphate, uh, it it matched pretty well because I wasn't really exposed to much killings. We were in Raqqa. Yeah. And there were airstrikes, but they were really mild. So it was still very much like my country, but on the Sharia. It wasn't crazy. It wasn't extreme then. Please note that an extremist may not be the best judge of what is and is not extreme. We had a normal life. No, nah, it was a normal life. We had tea parties, pajama parties. Yeah. We had, um, what else? Yeah, it was just, it was really arty. Yeah, we had a normal Irene now. Yeah, yeah, it was really yeah. cool, you know? Until all the bombings came, then you got this wake-up call. What am I doing? Where am I? Kind of thing, you know? But the beginning, it was cool. It was calm. 
you know, you learn the daily found out a lot of things that we thought uh, that we were privy to before. You learned differently when we came here, you know. And uh, Alhamdulillah. But even in the beginning, they were beheading people in the street, in the square, in Raqqa. That's, like we that's not a normal life. That's the thing. We, we never actually saw these things. You know why? How would you not know about it though? If they no, we knew it, it existed, out. but we never witnessed yeah, it. Yeah, I never you saw didn't go into the Yeah, like you would see the children. I, I don't like these things, really. Yeah. I knew it happened today then because I heard my neighbor saying, "Oh, they killed somebody in the square," but I never ran. To, I don't want to see it. You said that's your kid's story. Yes, my that's it. My son, because he's at that time. You know, the boys are in the street. They just came back from school. Mommy, I saw this man being headed today. He was stung up, strung up like this, or they stoned this person. Or this. I saw people being stoned to death in my day. But in Raqqa, in the early days, I, 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 was never, I never witnessed it. But I heard about it. So I knew it existed. You understand? And what kind of effect do you think that had on your son? Of course, a very violent one. You know, it was very violent. But at the beginning, we all thought it was Adi, you know? We thought it was Adi, okay? This is his punishment for this. And everybody's like, you know... Takbir is just the name for the one Arabic phrase every American knows, Allahu Akbar. She's saying that the trauma of witnessing these executions turned her son into a more fervent jihadi. Next, I asked how both women wound up in the custody of the SDF. Coming down to the end, end days, we stayed as long as we possibly could, and then um, my son, whose foot is now amputated, Kasaf hit the house and his foot well, it went black immediately. An airstrike hit the house, yeah, you said? Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, I don't know exactly what hit the house, but something hit it. And I think it was a Howard. Yeah, and yeah. He, I stayed there for about two days after, hoping it could get better. Could and that's in Raqqa? No, no, this was in Bagus. Oh, in Bagus. In Bagus. Yeah. Bagus is a name that lives in infamy here. It was the last territorial holdout of the Islamic State in Syria. So something explosive yeah. hits, yeah. hurts your son. And then, um, Initially, a lot of people think that um, the people who stayed in Bagus are like uh, warmongers. They're like this and so much hate and they love war. There were actually a lot of people who wanted to leave with the first and second Hudna. Hudna? The Hudna. When yeah, they opened that road. Chitty. Ah, ah, you know? yeah. But then we saw videos and then some of the women, example, uh, one of my friends, she said, you're going to the to, to PKK, the rape women and the dual women. There's so a lot of people who wanted to leave. They were afraid to come here. And that's why nobody left. That's why few people left before. Yeah. Until it got too extreme that Khalas people just picked up. They're like, Khalas, you're going to rape them, whatever. We're already exposed to whatever, you know? So that's when people left. But I really dislike hearing people say, oh, these bagless people, these bagless people. There are some people who really wanted to leave and were afraid to leave because of the situation that we thought we would have been exposed to here. And did you did you believe that as well? That like if you yeah. were captured by the SDF, that it was yeah. Because yeah. remember, we were exposed to the Islamic State for a very long while. And if you see uh, kafir or PKK or whatever you want to call them, the next thing is you're going to think they're going to abuse you automatically. And then we're thinking, okay, the woman will treat you like this, and the man's going to rape you here, and they leave you to starve, and they leave you like. Oh. Yeah. So a lot of people were afraid. What's the reality? What's it like here? When I came and I saw it wasn't like that, I was like, came from a situation where we were starving to death, mm -hmm. literally starving to death, and it was a massacre. Every day, someone next to you walking over someone's body, someone's hand. So here, it's actually, it, it, you're living and, you know, there's... It's karma by far. It's yeah, much karma. There's, there's no bombs. There's, Would you... 
would you say the SDF, the, the, the guards here, respect your, your human rights? I won't say the guards at all. I would say no. Red Cross. Yeah, that's different. I, yeah, because I think once, uh, once Red Cross is around or Red Crescent or whoever, you see a difference in the guards' behavior. Yeah. When these people are not around to monitor their actions, then they beat women and shut a boy in his hand, yeah. felt in stones, which, as I said, I really hate, you know, but that's not, I don't think, I think that was a little drastic, you know, shooting him in his hand. But I can understand how uh, how angry they were because I myself hate it, you know. Sometimes the women tell the children, you know, pelt the, um, like when the trucks are going, pelt them with stones or pelt the mustache foul because they're kafir, they're kafir, they're kafir. But if you think about it, even that is rahmah from Allah. You know, that is a mercy from Allah to be amongst the kufar who are still treating you well, which I think is from Allah. You know, I come on, we killed husbands kill this one or you know your family killed this kill their parents and whatever and they still have mercy which i think is from Allah. so to tell them you know to pell stones here or pell stones there it doesn't make sense and at the end of the day you you pell the mustache for you do all these things and then your child end up there tomorrow it was clear that both of our interviewees were different levels of radicalized i'm sure you've picked up on it too the quieter one seemed to be watching her loquacious friend she spoke up to let us know that the SDF guards were vicious, but quieted down while her companion explained why it wasn't so unreasonable for a guard to have shot a boy in the hand for pelting him with rocks. She credited Allah for the mercy she and her fellow captives experienced here, acknowledging that she and her fellow dashis had killed family members of many of the guards, and that their treatment, by comparison, had been gentle. It was as close to a ringing endorsement as a prisoner of war is likely to give. In fact, the more we talked, the clearer it became that at least one of these women feared her fellow detainees more than the guards. You, even how you guys picked us up. I'm wondering if I go back home and they see me coming out of the vehicle. Now they're going to think we are Jasus. So, you know, you talk to the cafe and means you told them something. And that's why so many women are hesitant to, you know, when they see you, they walk in the opposite direction. I'm telling you, you know, because they don't want to be seen with you guys because of that reason. Next thing you know, your crime is being burnt or your child is killed somewhere. I should note here that kufar is an Islamic slang term for non-believer. I asked next what both women wanted for their lives after this. They expressed a desire to return home and live a normal life. Do you think you deserve that though? Like you've been a part of a group that have slaughtered people, traded women as slaves, killed people's children. There's 11,000 martyrs from the YPG that have died from a stop. The Islamic State, you know, I don't mean to be rude, but like, do you think no, you understand. deserve that? You I know understand. what I'm saying? And realistically, I agree with you. I mean, why should you deserve that? Sometimes the sisters are by the gate, they go out and they're like, um, open the gate, open the gate, they smile, open the gate. These guys don't have no rahma. And I'm like, what? Rahma? Rahma is an Islamic term that means mercy. We kill these people, husbands, their wives, their children, rahma. I'm like, come on, that's suburb kind of thing. But and then the they get angry with but me. But at the same time, it's not a one-sided killing. No. The killing has come from both sides. I've lost two husbands. Mm. So, what, 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 like, how do you look at it now? But Both sides have died, so therefore, what picture do you go with me? And then after you see Babush, I don't think I could like, necessarily say Daesh was behind or Babush yeah. was um, madness, was massacre. I didn't even think World War I or World War II was like, like that. My mental... I think my mental is gone. It was that. crazy. Bagus was crazy. To have a plane actually shoot at you. Then even you to know like the certain noises I hear, I'm still like so. There was afraid. an orphanage with um Yatim so children and they bombed the orphanage. Come on, they bombed a children's hospital, they bombed a And at that time no fighting was happening, it was just very you calm. you because you don't want to come towards the SDF. 
because you want to stay, we are going to shoot at you constantly and kill your children. And how, to me, how do you justify that part? But no one will see it that way, you understand? No. When you look at how you've been treated after being captured by the SDF, uh, if the war had gone the other way and your side had won and captured them, how do you think they would have been treated? As a guard, PKK guard? No, no. As, a, as a normal local. Family. Normal citizen? Mm -hmm. For me, because I grew up my back. Listen, I did social, uh, psychology and social work before, so I have a really. I don't know, balanced. I'm open to a lot of things, you know? Like, for example, one of the journalists came and I hugged her when she left. I, you know, hi, bye. I see them on the street, hi, how are we going? So for me, I would treat you the same. That I. For me, I don't know about them. For me, this is my personality. I'm a very happy-go-lucky person. That's me. Whatever you choose to do with your life, that's you. But obviously, I would try to introduce you to Islam kind of thing, you know? I'm Muslim. Good. Well, I mean, if you weren't Muslim, then. I don't know what You know? Okay, what about us? We're white Western journalists. Yeah. You guys cut the heads off of quite a few white Western journalists. And we're not Muslim. Yeah. No. yeah. How would we be dealt with? You see, I don't know how the men, yeah. in terms of the men, how the men dealt with things. We just saw the beheadings on the television. Or so we beheaded, come on, you knew, you saw. James Foley was beheaded. Like, uh, we were reporting in this region around the same time. No. Like, I knew if I was captured, that mm -hmm. that's what was going to happen to me. Mm -hmm. um, Especially if you were on the other side, I would imagine the same. But everyone's case is not the same. That's as much as I could see. So I can't say, yes, you would have been killed, or no, you would have been killed. I, I believe the men, the men deal with and they never exposed us like our husbands. They never really exposed us to what... Both women had a tendency to waffle when we pressed them directly on Islamic State atrocities. And the fact that if our situations had been reversed, Jake Chabot and I would not have known nearly so much mercy as they now enjoyed. You know, like, um... Like, they, they never exposed us with how the men would deal with the men. Kind of thing, you know? So I really don't know. I would just see the, the, the videos of it or whatever the case is, and then we would find out, but... In terms of the woman, I could tell you how I would be with you. You understand? But in terms of the men, yeah, I think you would have been beheaded, honestly. Does any of that, kind of the, the brutality of, the, of, of what was going on there, does any of that make you rethink your decision to be a part of it? Um. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> oh, no, that's a big question. No. Given all you've been through. seen it come to the brutality come towards us as well in the sense so I don't know what I would say the brutality no, no I won't say this I've seen a lot of serious things on my side as well which the world has not been their eyes have not been open to this can you understand maybe why not though? Like just, just like from my point of view, you know, it's like if someone, if if ISIS start up, they're cutting off heads, they're putting women in veils. Now I understand you, you don't mind it because it's your side of things, right? But they're pushing that on everybody, you know. They're cutting off a journalist's head just because he doesn't have the same ideology. Can you not see how then that we're like, well, yeah, kill them, like frankly, 
you know, it's a war and we don't want that so it has to be stopped. Like, can you understand why the brutality happened or do you see it differently? I don't know. For me, I never even, like I'm hearing you saying this and for me what I taught before they kill you because you don't have the proper ideology, I t for me, I thought they would have exposed you to what they thought the proper ideology would and not just kidnap you and kill you. You understand? I, I, I don't know if that's what happened, but now that you're saying it, I don't know if that's what, what happened or if they... I, I don't know. I really don't know. Some of the things I'm telling you, we really don't know. Yeah, because they were captured, but what happened in these prisons, what conversations, what chances were made, I don't know. Yeah, they obliged all the Yazidi to convert their religion. When Chabat says that ISIS obliged the Yazidis to convert to Islam, she's referring to the genocide that the caliphate carried out upon the members of that religious minority. They did not like that. You know, I actually know two Yazidi women I met in Raqqa, and they were slaves to a Bosnian guy, and uh, I can't remember the other person. And I got really good friends with her. You know, I remember that in the blue building on... Um, one of, anyway, I can't remember. And from what she told me, she said that she really loved her slave, a slave master. And she accepted Islam. Now, that was either a lie or an example of a terrified enslaved person trying to avoid punishment. In either case, it pissed Jake Chabat and I off. She and the other person, you know? That's I, what they told me. I've talked to, at this point, more than 100 Yazidis yeah, yeah. who saw all of the men in their village mm -hmm. lined up and shot and no, their bodies no. thrown into a hole. Um, what can justify that? Is that kafar? Is that enough to justify killing all the men? That they're kafar? I understand what you're saying. Yeah. For me, this war is never ending, and it's on both sides, and one side will only see their story, the other side will just see this. And My way is the right way, your continue. way is the right way. That's how I see it. No and that's why I say, whatever you believe, you be your way, I be mine. Kind of thing, you know, and I just try to keep the balance in between. We always debate it. seems to me, though, that I, I'm sure that there's, there's bad things done by guards here, but on the whole, you, you're, you're well-fed. You're safe from at least nobody's bombing you, nobody's shooting at you. Um, the threats that you face on a daily basis are from other people that you, you were members of the Islamic State with. Uh, and the SDF is allowing you, you're allowed to wear your niqab, you're allowed to continue to worship Actually, your religion. Actually, we heard yesterday that is mamnu. <laughs> One of the guys was telling us that it's mamnu to wear niqab, it's mamnu to wear black, it's mamnu to wear blue. Yeah. And all those As other things. But still... you will see that they will take this off. You think no, so? Yeah, I think that it just, It's just a matter of time. Yeah. As of nine months later, prisoners in Al Hol are still allowed to wear their niqab. Gloves, no gloves. It's, it no seems that you've been shown more toleration, though, than, for example, if I or Jake wound up in the custody of the Islamic State, that we would have been shown. Yeah, maybe. Or if you got sent to the Iraqis or the regime, yeah. you wouldn't be sitting here. One thing I just want to say is that it's weird to me to hear, you know, you're a black woman, right? Mm -hmm. Black women have been oppressed from start of time. And you just justified that a Yazidi woman, it was okay because she loved her slave master. Like, mm -hmm. what's going on? I don't know what she, you see, I don't know the history of the Yazidis. But I you just, don't know the history of enslavement. 
Nah, but I don't know her relation. I never asked, you know, like what about these CDs? Why? I just know she was enslaved. I don't know how far it went. You don't think there's anything wrong with having slaves? I didn't. What you mean, like how he, she was a slave for yeah, him? Yeah, you think it's okay? Or... Their relationship seemed very weird. I don't know this. I, their relationship was very abnormal. But slavery in Islam is not like slavery back in the day. There's you're supposed to. There's certain rules you have to follow. You have to show. The profound irony of black women justifying slavery to two white men was not lost on me. Somehow that didn't make it funny. But I talked to Yazidi no, slaves not. who claimed that they were but raped. But that doesn't mean that's Islam. You understand what I'm saying? That doesn't mean that's Islam. So you think ISIS went against Islam? If that's what they were doing and they were raped, then yes. yes. These women could have taught a course on weasel words to an audience of congressmen. I suspect some of their care came from a desire to be freed eventually and to return home to the Caribbean. Admitting to having watched executions and cheering for the rape of slaves would endanger that. Do you miss the West? Do you miss, well, the Caribbean? Um, I miss the beach. For certain things, <laughs> yeah. I miss um, my family there as well. No, I miss my mom. And, uh, not true. What would your mother think of it? I think well, she knows. My mother is against everything, but you know, she's Her Christian. mother is Christian. In mine, she's Muslim. A lot of the women in the camp parents are Christian, came from Roman Catholicism and all these other things, you know. Do you want to, like, if your country would take you back, would you leave this place and go back home? A lot of people from my country want to go back. I think just about everybody, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? Would you still wear the niqab if you went back to your country? Yes. I don't think, I don't know how it is in Barbados. It's been four years wearing it, so um, yeah, it's, it's really my belief that it's more uncomfortable with, so why not? But to walk around in the street with it, yes, you'd also be targeted. But in my country, it's, I don't think it's, um, it's something, uh, it's, it's normal, because there are women in my country who wear niqab. You know, and who okay. wear gloves and all these things, but colored ones. You know. So. What? Uh, how old are you both? I'm thirty. I'm thirty. Thirty, I think. Yeah. Thirty-two with thirty-three. I'm thirty. Um, are you comfortable giving your names? I am Alia Abdul Haq. <laughs> you can just give a first name too. That's better. Abby. Abby. Aliyah and Abby, and you were born in Trinidad, and you were born in Barbados. Aliyah, I feel like you're perhaps more missing things. For my country? I miss my mom. Yeah. She was my best friend, you know, still is, I guess, but I really miss my mom. I miss that relationship we had. This is the most genuine emotion we see out of either of them during the interview, and I'd be lying if I said it didn't break my heart a little bit. Both Aaliyah and Abby are unrepentant members of a genocidal terrorist group, but they're also still human beings, and it fucks your head up a little bit to think about. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? 
why did the internet choose them, and what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Aaliyah and Abby made several strong protestations that they never sought to infringe on anyone else's liberty. They just wanted to be able to live life according to the strict rules of their interpretation of Islam. But as we talked to them, it became clear that what they really meant is that they wanted the chance to live by their rules in a place where no one else had the choice to live any other way. So coming here, living here was, for me it was good because everyone else around me was on the same page, which is what we all wanted to be together in a place where we all had the same Akita, the same thinking. Yeah. yeah. We spoke with a young woman who um, lived under ISIS, uh, I think for three years, mm-hmm. um, who went out in a niqab with a silver belt and was caught by the Hizbah and was punished by being lashed 1,500 times yeah. in her back. Do you think that's a fair punishment for the crime? That is not even from Islam. <laughs> 1,500 times? Yeah, three different men had to whip her because their arms kept getting tired. We always hear about these things, and there is nowhere in Islam you can open a book and find that. Listen, there's a difference between Islam and a person's, your belief. 
just as I say, there's a difference between culture and a difference between Islam. It's interesting to me that Aliyah and Abby reacted to this story of ISIS brutality the same way many Iraqi Muslims I spoke to in Mosul related to stories of the caliphate's brutality. The difference is, those Muslims had chosen to take up arms against the group perverting their faith through sadistic violence. They fought and died to put an end to this monstrosity. Aliyah and Abby, however, joined it. Uh, under the Islamic State, you, uh, they had attempted to enforce a variety of laws, which you could say were not you know, part of Islam as written, but that's still what the Islamic State t- tried to do. Whereas a government like the one that exists in Rojava, um, you can live strict under Muslim law if you want, but you're not forced to. Why would you prefer to live in a system where people are forced to live a certain way as opposed to one where you could choose to live as a Muslim or choose not to and not be punished either way? In Morocco, and not just Morocco, but I think under the Islamic State, I wouldn't say I was forced to do anything. You weren't, but other people were. No, I felt very free, actually. I I think at this point we get to a very important truth about both of these women in particular and religious extremists in general. They are supremely selfish people. Because we, we actually went, we came from our country and went towards that. So to say you were forced, then... Yeah, like what you said with the Yazidis and all of the, you know, yeah, I can yeah. understand that question. But, them, you know, that's but people true. weren't, like no, the Islamic no. State wasn't setting up a new country in an empty area and just saying, we want to live this way and everyone who wants to live this way can move here. Mm. They were, they had an army, they conquered territory. Yeah. And so people were forced to live a certain way. Mm-hmm. The house you lived in, someone was chased out of it. No. Mm. Doesn't does that seem wrong? Knowing the history of Islam, I would say no because hasn't that same thing happened in the history? I think history? that's it. You need to know the history of Islam yeah. first, and you'll be able to put two and two together. You know. And it, it, I'm not on about the history of Islam. I'm just on about being good to your fellow person. Religion aside, you chase someone out of their home. I don't know. I'd be annoyed if someone did that to me. Um, like back this is something that has happened from the history of, from like time immemorial. It's happened from not just Islam. It's happened with Columbus and this one and that. Yeah. You know, they chased the Amerindians out, forced them to live on them. So it's something that has been Uncle just way. historical. I, do you not think that cycle can be broken and we can make better societies that <laughs> don't do then, that? Come on, we're talking about this since uh, slavery and all this going on. I've seen the same logic used by fascist extremists in the United States. People who believe the colonization of the Americas and the enslavement of black Africans were both justified because other people in history also did bad stuff. This is probably not surprising, but neither of these women expressed any true remorse for the crimes that they had enabled. They did, however, grudgingly accept that, things being what they were, internment by the SDF was about the best option they had left. Would you want to go to Iraq? You would prefer to stay here with the SDF as opposed to that? Why? Because over there is a different type of people. <laughs> they do, no, do not want to be in the hands of... No. I think it was a rough Yeah, no. <laughs> if we have to stay here, then... The last ISIS prisoner sent to Iraq, a bunch of former French citizens, had in fact been tried and executed immediately upon their arrival. The fact that execution is banned under Rojava's constitution was probably the only thing keeping Aliyah and Abby both alive. Our time together was drawing to an end, but I had one last question I wanted to ask them both. I, uh, you know, one of the videos that I watched before I went over to Iraq the first time that was produced by the Islamic State was a young boy, maybe seven years old, with a handgun, 
executing a man in Mosul. Um, if one of your sons were to take up jihad and at their current age kill one of the guards here, or me, or her, or him, would you be proud? I don't think that is the word proud. Proud is not the right word to use. But... Um, what, how would you feel, I guess? It's more open-ended. First, I would want to know why he did. Because they're Kufar. First, I would be scared about what would next happen to him. That is my first thing that I feel, rather than know why did he do it. Because, of course, I have a lot of hate within me for people who have us here in prison. So, you know, just the other day I heard someone, some woman was shot. So I... And that was it. Our face-to-face talk with Isis, or at least what's left of it. We called our guard back in, and she returned them to their tents, where, for all I know, they still reside today. Our next scheduled adventure was a tour around the camp, but before we went off to do that, our Asaish guard came back in and suggested we might want to interview one of the non-Isis civilians interned in this camp with them, a young person who was initially described by the guards as transgender. So this person we're about to meet is, you would say, transgender? It's not completely transgender, it's just like, you know, outside appearance. Like Habat explained that the guard had, good-naturedly, gotten some of her terms wrong. The person we were about to interview was a young girl who lived and presented as a young boy. This didn't seem to be a matter of how this person identified. It was a practical strategy for avoiding violent attention from the ISIS brides. To just to protect herself. They came from Aleppo, a city largely destroyed in an unsuccessful attempt to free itself from Bashar al 
Assad. So she came to Raqqa with her mother and her uncles, uh, her mother's brothers, okay? So she came with them and uh, in Raqqa her mother had been وفات عادية ولا تيك توفت ولا قصف ولا شيء؟ لا قصف مدفعية. Yeah, because of a shelling. Her mother as a result passed away. In case that was hard to understand, this poor kid's mom took her and her siblings to Raqqa and into the domain of the Islamic State because it was safer than Aleppo. Then, during the U.S. SDF shelling of that city, her mother was killed. So she stayed with her uncles until they drive her until Babuz. Her uncles they moved to Mayadin. Then they they deliver her. To, they married her to her cousin. She was 13 years old when she get married. This arranged marriage lasted six months. She was 13 and he was 19. Her husband fled eventually, abandoning her to the hell that was Baguz. She lived through the last battle of the caliphate, just like the two brides we'd spoken with earlier. When ISIS resistance collapsed, she was taken into custody like the rest of the civilian survivors. The whole nature of ISIS and radicalization meant that the SDF couldn't just release all these people. Many of them were innocent victims, like this kid and her siblings. But others were like the ISIS brides you just heard from, and their children, one of whom tried to burn a guard alive recently. You don't want those people let out to have their run of Rojava. This is why innocent civilians displaced by war are held in the same massive camp as ISIS brides. Our new little friend has family outside of the camp, and they tried to get her out, but her aunt and uncle live in Aleppo, which is controlled by the regime, and to make a long story short, bureaucratic confusion makes it impossible for her to leave now. So she remains here with her younger siblings, and since she is the oldest, she's made it her business to take care of them. This necessitates the disguise. In order to manage to uh, protect my siblings, at the same time to serving them and helping them, for example, when I go to the queue, whether whether it's just a man I can't survive, and, and The disguise also protects her. The ISIS brides have formed something akin to a mafia within the camp. The guards cannot be everywhere, and there are 70,000 people in Al-Hol. Being a young girl out of a niqab would make her a target. And they started, the ISIS woman, they started to tell her why you are not wearing the full Sharia's clothes. And she said, at that moment, I decided to wear my, to have this boy's uh, During her time under ISIS, she had heard terrible things about the SDF. So they were always like telling us they are far and they are, uh, if they were going to capture you, they were going to rape, convert you to a sick slave, uh, mm. and they were going to put you in a prison, and always bad things about them. She claims she never believed the propaganda, though, and she has clearly become a favorite of the guards here. They slip her extra food, watch over her and her siblings, and help keep her a secret. That's all that can be done at the moment. She leaves, cheery as can be. But Chabat, Jake, and I are all bummed as hell about her situation. I would like help her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would like yeah. help I don't know if it's reward to sponsor her or to something. At least get her back to her aunt. Mm-hmm. To at least get her back to her aunt. Now that we're all properly pissed off and disheartened, it's time to finally go out into the hurly-burly of Al-Hol. We meet up with our guards, two armed SDF men, and we head out on foot. They've had too many vehicles damaged by rock throwing to want to drive. Before we head out, Chabot makes sure I have my knife in my free hand. So we're about to walk through Al-Hol camp, through the tents, through the market. 
We've got two YPG guards with us, both of them armed with AK-47s. If we're swarmed and attacked by ISIS brides, the guns won't be of much use. One of our guards even points to his AK-47 and says, essentially, if they come at us, these aren't going to help. It becomes immediately clear why this is. Al Hall is massive, filled with countless thousands of tents and crowds of people. There are few guards, and the maze of tents could disgorge a crowd of armed ISIS brides at any point. They could come right out on top of you, knives and razor blades drawn. As we walk into the camp, a young child in a red Adidas shirt walks by questioningly at me. Ahead, I see two Dosh brides in full niqabs, one carrying a baby, and then a crowd of people further into the market. We walk past crowds of ISIS brides, some escorted by guards, some not. Whenever I look at them, they flip down the little face shield in front of their eyes, turning them all into uniform, eyeless masses of black fabric. It is unsettling, to say the least, particularly as we get further in. At several points, we're surrounded by ISIS brides, all faceless but staring at us. They look like ghosts. It is one of the eeriest experiences of my life. It is a bit like being inside the Islamic State, with uh, our guards being the human equivalent of one of those tanks people sit inside to watch sharks. As we get further into the camp, we reach the market, a bustling square filled with large, tent-based shops. This surprises me. I've seen refugee camps in Ukraine, Serbia, Hungary, Iraq, and now Syria. All of them have some sort of internal economy, but the market here is the largest I've seen. In general, Al Hol is dusty, but clean, orderly, and well-maintained. I do not believe anyone who has visited refugee camps around the world could fault the SDF for what they've established here, given the resources available to them. The frightening aspects of this place have nothing to do with how it's run and everything to do with the fact that it hosts thousands of ISIS sympathizers. And unfortunately, lots of children are trapped in the middle. As Jake Chabot and I wander through, we meet a young black boy, around 10 years old, who identifies himself as an American. We're in America. Where in America are you from? Trinidad. Trinidad, ah. How do you come to be here? My father born. And where's your father now? <laughs> Sorry to hear that. It becomes clear that he meant from the Americas in that. And he said dead, not fallen Shahid, when he talked about his father. The fact that he calls his father a corpse and not a martyr is telling. The fury rolling off this boy is palpable in his eyes. Sorry to hear that. Huh? I said, I'm sorry to hear that. He died. Yeah. Airstrike or? Airstrike. You want to go home? Yeah. Did you think he did? Did he talk to anyone back Yeah, home? I talked to a lot of people. They said they were trapped. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever seen more anger from a person. He walks off, alone, into the dusty crowd. And we continue our walk, too. The market is... That's a market. There's shops, a pretty wide variety of products, dozens and dozens of stalls. Uh, for a prison, people seem to be about as free as you could expect them to be. We ask our guards to take us on a walk up to the walled-off ISIS compound within the camp. It takes about a half hour, on foot. As we trek, our guards greet individual internees they know personally. Most of the people they stop to speak to are little kids, including one chubby, wheelchair-bound boy. Both of his legs are missing from the knee down, the consequence of a U.S. airstrike. 
He looks like he must be in constant pain, but he's all smiles and laughter when we meet him. He is clearly a favorite of the guards. A small four-wheel buggy rolls past, basically a golf cart. Two kids are holding onto the back as it drives, and one of our Asaish guards yells at them, tutting that they might fall off and hurt themselves. The why behind this is made clear as soon as we reach the outskirts of the ISIS compound. We see a small crowd of guards gathered around where one of the kids we saw earlier is lying in the dust. Blood pours down the front of his forehead. Another child, possibly his brother, tries to help him up. When the guards see what's happened, one of them dashes in and grabs the child, hosting him up on his chest and sprinting off to the medical center to see to the boy's injury. We head inside the compound. The ISIS camp is immediately and deeply bizarre. Because most of the ISIS brides and their children are foreigners, this place is incredibly diverse, with every conceivable nationality represented. The boy passes me in a shirt with the Australian flag that says, Fair Dinkum, Aussie. Most of the children here will not talk to us. Many of them are clearly European or American, though. We see one white, blonde-haired boy, perhaps 12 years old. His arm is bandaged. He was shot in Bagus, fighting for the caliphate. We do not spend long in the little caliphate. It is depressing here. You can see in the eyes of the internees how many of them are still loyal. As we exit and walk back to the Asayish headquarters where we'd parked our car, we see a young woman sitting out on a bench, looking for all the world like she was waiting for a ride. My eyes are drawn to her because, from the neck down, she's dressed the same as a dashi. But her head is uncovered, and she wears lipstick. She's sitting next to a pile of water purification tablets, uh, a bunch of bread, and uh, several sheets of paper in a folder. She tells Chabat that she is from Aleppo. Like the little girl we met earlier, she decided to join the Islamic State, and she fled from Raqqa with them and wound up on the killing fields of Baguz. But now she's in Al-Hol and she's won herself an elected position on the camp's local commune. I ask her opinion on the democratic confederalist system. It's a good system. It's a good system. Uh, where does she hope to go when she gets out? When she gets out, is there a job she would like to do, or training she'd like to get when she gets out? She wanted to join the military forces. YPJ. Al-Hol is not a place of optimism, but this last interaction, the final interview of our trip to Rojava, does leave me feeling optimistic, and I will need that optimism, because two months after we leave, Turkey's invasion begins. Hundreds upon hundreds are killed, and hundreds of thousands are displaced. The Turkish army occupies more of Rojava's land. They conquer the city of Serakanye, forcing the SDF out of villages and towns that just weeks before Jake Chabat and I had driven through safely. Artillery fire lights up the sky around peaceful Derik. While Jake and I watch in horror from the safety of our homes in the west, Chabat risks her life to do her job once again. And as I type these words, she and Alan are still okay. During our road trip, Jake and I had played Chabat an old Irish rebel song, Go On Home British Soldiers. She'd liked it a lot. A few days into the Turkish invasion, this song goes viral among supporters of the Rojavan cause. Go on home, Turkish soldiers, go on home. Have you got no fucking homes of your own? For the 40 years, we fought you without fear. 
we fight you a few hundred more. But revolutionary spirit alone was not enough to hold the line. And so, after the invasion, the military leaders of the SDF were forced to allow the Syrian regime and the Russian army in. There was no other choice with the Turkish army bearing down on their positions. At this moment, the Syrian regime is too militarily weak to enforce its rules on the people of Rojava. But Bashar al-Assad has made it clear that he does not intend to let the self-administration remain autonomous forever. The people of Rojava and the SDF have made it equally clear that they won't let that happen without a fight. And true to their nature, the SDF has doggedly resisted the invasion. Jinwar was abandoned briefly and then reoccupied. Kobani, Kamishlo, and Darik still endure and resist. The teachings of Abdullah Ajalan are still preached to young men and women at YPG and J training academies. The mamas and their peers still continue their experiments in ground-up social organizing. The ideas of Murray Bookchin have not been abandoned. But from where I sit, it is deeply unclear if this experiment will continue in the long run. As always happens in war, brutality has bred more brutality. The Turkish government has continued to carry out the ethnic cleansing campaign that began in Afrin, forcing Kurds out and bussing in Arabs. They have executed political leaders, tortured captured female fighters, and carried out drone strikes on civilian targets. In response, anti-Turkish partisans have escalated their own brutality. On April 28, 2020, a truck bomb was detonated in Turkish-occupied Afrin, killing 53 people, including 12 Turkish-backed fighters and 11 children. The SDF officially condemned the attack. Turkey blames it on the YPG. I cannot tell you who is responsible, but for days afterwards, that old George Orwell quote from Homage to Catalonia ran through my mind. The fact is that every war suffers a kind of progressive degradation with every month that it continues, because things such as individual liberty and a truthful press are simply not compatible with military efficiency. But, as of right now, Rojava still endures. Kobani, Kamishlo, Derik, and Jinwar all still resist. It is a resistance defined by compromise and painful uncertainty. But it is not death, and Rojava's future is still unwritten. And as the terrible news of the last seven months has reached my door, I've steadied myself by remembering that last interview we conducted in Al-Hol, with a former ISIS supporter who'd been converted and liberated by the Rojavan system. As long as this revolution's ideals can take root in the hearts of men and women, even men and women who once pledged loyalty to the Islamic State, anything is possible. Out of Baghuz and she wanted to join. This is the radicalization that I was telling you. Tell she's got lipstick on. Lipstick? Yeah. yeah, she still got a lot of the yeah. the, the dress on, but she's yeah, she she slowly out. getting out. Yeah. yeah. But it's good. Yeah. No, no, I have a hope. When he said there is a hope, there is a hope. If Aleppo, the most radical ISIS, Syrian ISIS, they are in this, they are participating in the council and coming and they are realizing this new system, I think we have a hope. Un 
为了瞧，为了瞧，为了瞧，瞧瞧我把地上的我的秘密啊，写满心头的茉莉。Production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Bean Dad, The Dress, Thirty to Fifty Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. Sixteenth Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, and every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet? Or the algorithm choose them, and what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.